Now, I'm going to make my introduction um, very, very brief. In fact, I'll probably uh, migrate to over here so I can get a better view of the artwork because it is about the artwork and it's about the artist as well and um, it's about um, the connection with many things. I'll just give it... Um, we're here, by the way, uh, to listen to Laura Oldfield Ford. Um, in the meantime, the next one minute, you'll have me blathering on. My name is Nick Byrne. Um, I'm acting as chair tonight, and it's actually a big privilege for me uh, to meet Laura for the first time as well. Um, I've had a good look at her work last week, and um, I've been really sort of knocked out by it, um, mainly because it sort of drifted me back to, frighteningly, my, my involvement in... Um, certain areas of the punk movement and with Derek Jarman and some of the images of a film if you do get a chance to see it called Jubilee as well which um, uh, this idea of a post-apocalyptic post-Olympic vision but it goes far more than that and there's areas of, of, of levels of humour and seriousness in Laura's work that are actually fascinating and being a fellow northerner although I'm on the other side of the um, mountain range I'm from the Lancastrian well, side, you know, but um, it's been very interesting discussing that. Again, it's an event brought to you um, with LSE Arts. Um, for those of you who might be surprised that there is an artistic side to LSE, there is. And LSE Arts really wants to connect people who are interested in that element of the social sciences, how art engages with society, and, um, and bring to as many people as possible these ideas. Um, I run the Language Centre here at LSE. Um, I've got a degree in um, a Master's in Design History from St. Martin's. And I'm, it's really good when you actually find out that not only me, but other people at LSE have got this secret design or art side background to us, so we do exist. Anyway, I'm going to stop now. Um, Laura's going to talk for um, as long as you really want to, really, isn't it? That's the idea. But it's going to be half an hour to 45 minutes and be a chance for you to... Um, uh, ask questions and, uh, and, and discuss further. So I'd like to give a big round of applause and welcome to Laura, to the LSE team. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thank you all for coming. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, the images that I'm going to show you um, tonight are drawings that I've been making over the last three or four years. Um, um, just to contextualise the book, really, Savage Messiah, that I've just, uh, that's just been published on Verso, which is a collection of all my zines, um, Savage Messiah, that I've been making um, since 2005. Um, so the drawings that I'm showing you are really um, things that appear in the book, but are sort of part of a wider process of investigation um, as well, um, through walking the city, really. And this has been a process of psychogeography or a sort of um, interrogation into the landscape that I've been working on for quite a few years now. Um, the zine started in 2005, um, which coincided with um, massive property speculation um, and urban regeneration schemes in London. So in a sense, my walks around the city and the drawings that I was making um, in response to that or that were generated from that became a chronicle, almost, of a, a disappearing London. So a lot of the places that I was, I was drawn to um, 
that I made my work about were these liminal territories almost. They were the in-between zones, the places that were in the process of being demolished, um, places that were, I felt, had some sort of, I had some sort of emotional engagement with. So as well as being a, a sort of witness and a chronicler of these changes, I also felt very much that I was, uh, I was involved on a, on a personal level, on a, on a sort of poetic level as well. So it wasn't a dispassionate stance, it was an absolute immersion, you know, a real involvement in this territory. Um, and a lot of the walks I was making um, were around the Lower Lee Valley, uh, the, the, the drawings I was making were, were generated from these walks around Stratford, um, the Lee Valley, Leighton, Leighton Stone, because of course the Olympic development was going on and this was making the area um, almost beyond recognition, you know, these, these drastic changes, which I didn't feel were progressive in any way. Um, so in a sense, the drawings that I was making were imbued with a, a deep sense of melancholy, really, um, and, and a sense of mourning, I guess, for, for a lost, not just a lost landscape, but uh, lost times as well. So through this process of making drawings and writing, I was occupying different temporal zones simultaneously. Um, so I move between the 70s, 80s, and, and also speculations about the future, um, what Nick said before about the sort of Jarmanist uh, post-apocalyptic landscape. That's something that I was um, trying to convey as well in the drawings, imagining what the Olympic site might look like after the next recession, after the next crash, um, when it becomes sort of overgrown and uh, abandoned and the Lee Valley reasserts itself and the area actually becomes interesting again. So these the places that I was talking about, um, in the sense that there was a, a resistance to uh, these urban regeneration schemes, I realized that even though I was like moving between different areas and, and, and talking about um, communities being pushed out, what I really was arguing for was um, the right to have a, a more itinerant or nomadic lifestyle, in a sense. Uh, it wasn't so much about the right to remain on a, a certain uh, specific uh, geographical location. It was more about the, the threat that I felt to myself and other people who wished to move around the city more in a nomadic fashion. And this was happening in, in several ways simultaneously. Um, there was a sense that through the um, urban regeneration schemes there was privatisation of public space, uh, almost like the Enclosures Act was happening again. So, you know, you'd go along the Thames path and then there'd be all these yuppidromes sort of bundling onto the Thames path and, um, you know, just these barriers were then implemented. Um, and the Lee Valley, of course, when the Olympic project started in earnest, that blocked the entire area off. You couldn't walk around that. So places that had meant a lot to me and other people who really appreciated having spaces in London that were not necessarily about 
the, the normal modes of consumption, of going into an area to spend money in an entertainment industry, but was much more about walking around, drifting, contemplating, or being places that were repositories of alternative scenes, alternative um, cultures, like, for example, um, the rave scene, the free party scene. These unpoliced spaces that had been important to us were now being turned into other sort of smooth spaces of, of capitalism. <coughs> so I would walk around and um, break into abandoned flats or, or go into building sites and make drawings, take photographs, make notes about what I would find and things like this, you know, you'd find um, sometimes just people's like lives just abandoned so it was it was just frozen this 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 moment where you'd get the trappings of domesticity um, just existing amongst rubble and detritus which made me think quite a lot about those moments of the um, the double exposed photograph or the paused videotape those those moments of threshold where the hidden narratives or the lost voices of the city are, are made fleetingly visible um, and this is a recurring uh, theme in, in the work that I make, uh, coaxing out these, these hidden narratives. Um, but also offering, uh, uh, well, attempting to offer a radical critique of urbanism and, and the situation that we were in at the time. So 2005, still new labour are, are holding on. Um, and there's this idea that, you know, most people have been doing okay through that, throughout that period. Um, but what I was also documenting was the fact that a lot of people weren't doing all right. You know, there was still this huge um, underclass of people that had been dispossessed by this process. A lot of people um, living like this, you know, six to a room, migrant workers, people squatting on um, abandoned estates, uh, people living in garden sheds in Slough, you know, this, this kind of... Uh, economy, strange housing economy. So I was talking about the ghosts of um, people that had been pushed out of uh, um, areas of London through these schemes. I was talking about it in terms of um, class cleansing, really. And I was quite clear about my position on that. Because I felt, um, and to go back to this idea of a, a nomadic life being uh, prescribed, I think you can pinpoint um, the early 90s as the moment when that really, um, Thatcher's ideas were really consolidated through John Major's Britain at that particular time. So you've got the criminal justice bill that was introduced then that legislated against certain cultures and lifestyles. Um, so then when you get into time when I started making the scene, 2005, urban regeneration schemes were very much, um, it, was, it was clearly about investment in an area in order to make it palatable for wealthy people essentially. So areas that had been dismissed as, um, you know, unpleasant and places that should be passed through quite quickly, which used to be called the inner cities, or places like really far out in the middle of nowhere were being made um, almost impossible to live in if you were on a low income. Um, and, and it kind of dawned on me, you know, that what we were really being lined up for was 
to be housed in, a, in, a, in these sort of huge ex-urban kind of sprawls. So the Thames Gateway model of, of uh, urban planning was really where people on low incomes were supposed to go while the super rich were supposed to enjoy the inner cities uh, and the areas that we'd occupied in the middle of nowhere through those scenes. So the, this recurring idea of the of, of nomadic architecture, uh, of nomadic um, lifestyles, kind of comes through the work a lot, at various points, um, and I juxtapose that quite often with the, the clean modernist lines of um, brutalist architecture, uh, modernist design. So this is a fragment from this is a detail of a series of drawings that I was making about the Elephant and Castle, so Haygate Estates and Aylesbury Estate there. Um, and I'm always interested in those moments of rupture in that modernist uh, planning where you get these nomadic elements, so you get people building temporary shelters with tarpaulin and scaffolding, people occupying um, the uh, central areas in estates with caravans and ambulances and horse boxes and these things so you know that sort of convoy culture how that altered the space um, and I'm, I was also very interested in how those spaces altered radically in the moment of um, social upheaval as well so how the walkways were used in Broadwater Farm for example in 1985 and how that altered um, urban planning after that um, and brutalist architecture, I felt, was something that I wanted to bring back into the work, but also onto the street. So I would make drawings of um, estates that had been demolished. So in the background of this, there's the Nightingale Estate, which is in Hackney, um, with the crumbling Edwardiana in the front. But when these estates were demolished um, and, and regarded as failures, um, I mean, they were all council houses. What replaced them was largely, um, you know, part rent, part buy, key worker housing or, you know, housing association stuff. Or um, yuppie flats, essentially, you know, what were described as executive flats during that period. So I would make fly posters with the old Brutalist estates on them and, and fly post them on the estates, uh, the new, sorry, the new um, developments. Um, in a sense, to this idea of coaxing out these, these revenants or these, these buried voices, you know. So this process of, of walking around and, and documenting these changes was, I felt there was a sense of urgency with it as well, you know, that you would go out and uh, places that you'd, you know, just always walked past was just suddenly not there anymore and they were being replaced by this kind of thing which is what the Trowbridge estate is now uh, in Hackney Wick. This was quite a, a massive brutalist estate, massive uh, five or six I think point blocks on the edge of the canal in Hackney Wick, some people might remember it, but they were being replaced by these very bland, what I would describe as exurban architecture. Um, so I was spending a lot of time around 
uh, Brutalist estates that have been abandoned. This is the Ferrier estate in Kidbrook um, in South East London. And also walking around um, the construction sites as well. So this is in Haggerston. Um, because there was that period, you know, between 2005 and 2009 where London just felt like one gigantic building site. Um, and there was this, these strange moments. Uh, this is um, Stamford Hill, um, and these houses um, were occupied when I went there. Um, but what had happened was the developments that were going on around there, these, these massive yuppie flats that were being built, were actually encroaching on these, these houses so that all the access to them was being sealed off by these um, fences and the people that lived in these houses before they'd been decanted, to use that horrible word, um, were effectively sealed off on an island. Uh, and this was a pattern that I saw replicated right across the capital, you know, this, this um, total encroachment and people left stranded in the middle of urban development schemes who were waiting to be rehoused. Um, so yeah, I mean, what I, I guess what I was doing really at this point was trying to conflate uh, a very poetic, involved engagement with these uh, places. I mean, this estate I lived on myself, um, with this this uh, you know observer or witness in a sense. Um, and then after walking around and, and making notes um, and, and recording the way that uh, the place felt at a certain time um, and making drawings of things that I found in abandoned flats, um, I would construct these, these sort of tableau, uh, large-scale drawings, where uh, different elements would um, combine you know, to create almost like a a dreamscape or something so it, it was almost like um, these areas became very spectral I, I would think of them as the spectral sectors of the city um, and that's how I, I came to describe them um, and it was almost as if um, throughout this whole process of regeneration and this attempt to sanitise London and make it palatable for the wealthy, I, I felt certain that there was this seething undercurrent of, of anger and, and viciousness, really, um, that would have to flare up at some point as an uncanny rupturing. Um, one of my zines was um, about the River Fleet, which is one of London's lost rivers, a subterranean river. Um, and I used that as a metaphor for the city's buried currents. And, and I talked about the uncanny rupturing then, um, this idea that at any moment the, the anger can explode in London. It always has had that quality and it, and it still does, as demonstrated this year on several occasions, not just the riots in summer. And I think that's we're on the brink of those times again. Um, in my work I talk a lot about the late 70s, I talk about 1981 in particular um, as, a, as an important time in um, the history of the UK, not just London. 
but um, as a moment where there was a constellation of, of social upheaval and riots, and that we return to these points again, that history allows us to return to these moments, that these things keep coming back. So I make these drawings and, and they're imbued with this, these uh, contradictions, I think. It becomes more, more akin to uh, collage or montage, bringing in these disparate elements. Um, and bringing in, in text for overheard conversations or graffiti, um, these different elements that I would find walking around these spaces. Um, and this is a, a row of abandoned buildings in, in Leytonstone. Um, it's quite a large scale drawing. You might not be able to sort of pick it up too well, but this is, is constructed of, of, of loads of layers of um, translucent paint with the, with the graffiti kind of embedded within it. And this is really about my attempt to articulate um, the city as, a, as palimpsest, really, as, as layers of, of writing and erasure and overwriting. So you get these traces and residues um, that are buried temporarily, but then emerge again uh, at other moments. So I'm just going to move through these quite quickly now. How long have I been talking now? Okay. Um, so yeah, here's some um, some of the drawings that I made where I was actually imagining London after um, sort of a, a crisis or, or or it being abandoned, where you get um, temporary occupations and and this idea of the nomadic architecture again. Um, and then, of course, you know, there's, there's these other ghosts, not just the ghosts of people that have been pushed out of the area, but, but the ghosts, the future ghosts of the, the imagined inhabitants, as, as the um, property developers would, would like us to imagine. So this image has got, um, it's a big estate in Haggerston, which, when there was a deep housing crisis in that area, and um, me and some of my, my friends were all evicted en masse from, from an estate, this other estate was just up the road and Hackney Council just left it abandoned for years um, with the orange Cytex on it. And they'd smashed up all the, all the plumbing and, and sealed off all the staircases with breeze blocks and so on. Um, while we were sort of forcibly moved to places like Poplar. Um, and then in the, you know, simultaneously you've got all these images of these people that they actually want to live there. So, you know, message is pretty clear. Um, and, and these brutalist blocks, again, you know, these were places that I, I felt, you know, it was really important to, to record that because they were all being blown up. I mean, this Hackney did destroy quite a lot of tower blocks over the last 10 years uh, and didn't replace that council housing. Um, So I was thinking a lot about how these sort of buildings would look um, when they were left like the brutalist buildings had been left without resources and money. Um, 
and the way that 60s buildings have been dismissed as failures, I, I thought this kind of architecture was really a failure, completely, even when it was brand new. It just looked horrible, and, you know, um, panels were falling off them, and bits of balconies were falling down, and they looked really shoddy quite early on. And they were shoddily built, you know, whatever people say about um, brutalist architecture, you know. All right, there was some kind of derivative uh, council stuff going on that wasn't architect built, but none of it was as was as bland and horrible as this kind of stuff that was just creating this homogenous um, image right across the whole of the UK. So this could be a PFI prison or a PFI school or a PFI block of flats. You wouldn't really be able to tell the difference. Um, and then at the same time. I kept making reference in the work, in the writing, to these other elements that were persistent, that, that would keep, you know, coming back. This what I would call psychic viciousness, you know, this this undercurrent, this undertow. So people might be a, might have been decanted, you know, they might have been evicted, but there were still these these traces, these these um, residues, and this class anger, which I think is now really visible. So all these drawings that I made are quite ephemeral in themselves. They're all done with biro. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're on paper. They are not monumental. They're not designed to last forever. They're not big oil paintings. There is a sense with them that they are something that, you know, relates to something fleeting and transient. And this is Thamesmead, which is a, another massive estate in the, the borough of Greenwich, which most people might recognise from Clockwork Orange. Um, and this is an area that a lot of people who were living in um, Zone 1, like places like the Elephant and Castle, have now been moved to. But, I mean, aside from these issues of, um, you know, social cleansing that I talk about a lot, these places resonate deeply with me on a, on a personal level as well. Um, I mean, I, I originally come from West Yorkshire, um, which, you know, is quite a, when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s, was a severely depressed industrial landscape with a lot of empty mill buildings, abandoned industrial structures, um, and in Leeds and Bradford, a lot of brutalist architecture as well. And I think that a landscape really occupies you, you know, you become occupied by it. Uh, as an artist or a writer, you might walk around these places but and think that you're staking your claim on it or your territory, uh, making it your territory. But I, I actually think it works the other way around. I think landscapes occupy us. Um, and it's been pointed out to me that, you know, the places that I've been drawn to in London are definitely the kind of places that would have affected me deeply as a child uh, growing up in West Yorkshire. You know, absolutely, um, it does resonate with me on that level. Um, so, I, th I don't know, there's not so much I can say now about this. Um, but then, yeah, so I was making these drawings that were more 
direct and confrontational. These, these became fly posters that would operate outside of the gallery system and in the street because it was really important for me to make work that uh, had loads of different registers and, and that there was these different uh, ways of communicating. So I, I was making big paintings, I was also making zines, I was making drawings for galleries and museums, but at the same time I was making these uh, quite punky drawings that would take like 10 minutes or so to make and putting them out there. And then uh, I started making these posters which were again these drawings of, the, uh, of future ghosts, the imagined inhabitants of these developments. And these were the faces that were tormenting us from, from the hoardings outside these uh, yuppie flats and, and new developments that we were seeing springing up all over. And originally I was going to make these fly posters with text, but then it became apparent through the making of them that I didn't need to put any text because it was like obvious what I thought. Um, so these appeared all around Broadway Market which is obviously the nexus of yuppie horror, as anyone who knows it would testify to. Um, yeah, and, but of course they loved it, the, the yuppies in Broadway Market, liked it a lot. Um, so, yeah, the, so I mean the reason I've put these in is just because I, I really wanted to show um, that you know, when I talk about a spectral city, it's, it is these. There was all these um, different elements coexisting that were still. Uh, I, I felt politically, sort of ideal, ideological traces, kind of vying for position in these places. Um, and then I would make uh, these like larger billboard posters that I would fly post around um, or get people to help fly post them um, and they would also exist in galleries as well um, where I was juxtaposing these uh, drawings that I'd made of, of these estates with um, these images that were appearing around London before Westfield shopping centre opened so I've been doing a lot of work and research around around that that whole development in Stratford. Um, and I've got a studio now in Dean Street in Soho, um, whereas previously I've always been kind of out in the liminal lands of Hackney Wick or uh, Hackney around there. But I think that's really affected the work as well, that these these weird spaces um, of consumption and, and these these alleyways behind these department stores, you know, I've been really starting to make detailed records of those as well. Um, and then just quickly, these covers of the zine. Um, each each zine that I made uh, was covering a different area of London, which. Uh, was going through some sort of significant um, urban regeneration scheme. So I made work about the Elephant and Castle, um, Round the West Way, um, the Isle of Dogs, Leighton, Hackney, Dalston. Um, and I was using this cut-up 
collage uh, method to really to, to combine the text and the images, but also to, to bring these disparate elements together. But the writing and the, and the images is always, for me, it's always happened symbiotically, so I didn't want to privilege one over the other, and to be able to conflate them in the zine was, was a really, uh, a kind of normal way for me to make my work. But also it fits into a, a lineage that I'm, I feel like I'm a part of as well. Um, through my involvement in punk and rave cultures over the years, something that I've always done and that I find quite um, a sort of easy, normal way to, to work like that. So going out and making collages out of photographs that I've taken um, and then taking them back to the studio and making these larger works out of them is, is kind of the way that I work, that's the process that's involved. Um, but I think in my practice, even though there are all these disparate elements, I, I, don't, I don't think one privileges the other. I think that they all come from the same central force, really. They, they're all related to the same thing. I guess if you, if you had to put one thing that was central to it all, it is, it is the derive, you know, the drift, um, the walk around the city. it that's the last slide so I think we're gonna hand it over to questions now Thank you very okay. much. white surfaces that you don't show us but like disappear on the paper that's great but basically the question is um, why do you want to retain the memory of this like natural city evolvement and the second question is what's wrong with yuppies oh. <laughs> what's oh, the gosh. deal with them the, the old favorite question yeah um, well I mean, I think because I've just been talking for so long, and 
I really feel like I've explained why there's something wrong with your face. What's wrong with your face? Well, I guess what we're talking about is the rich, okay? So it's like, the, it, in a sense, we can talk about it in terms of colonialism, in a way. So if you've got, like, when you get these huge um, property developments or urban master plans or urban regeneration schemes, often the developers will go into areas like colonial explorers and say, there's nothing here worth keeping. There are a few obstacles in the way, but they can be dealt with. You know, we can, we can get rid of these people. We can rebrand the area. We can give it a different name. We can erase the history. We can keep a few palatable elements of history for the sake of heritage. But the rest of it, just pretend it never <coughs> happened and pretend the people never existed there. That's essentially what has happened in so much of London, um, especially the East End. Uh, that's where I've spent a lot of my time in London. Um, and, you know, you get people moving in and they are completely, you know, aware of this process but are not bothered at all about it. Um, and when I talk about people being mo uh, moved from places like Elephant and Castle, like to Thamesmead, I mean, you might say, well, why is that a big deal? But if you've got a cleaning job in the city of London and you have to be at work at four or five in the morning, if you live in the Elephant, you can just cross Tower Bridge. If you're in Thamesmead, that's going to be like two and a half hours on a bus. So that's kind of... <laughs> there aren't any jobs in Thamesmead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd say put money into areas and, and, and improve the infrastructure and the fabric of the architecture for the people that live there already, not to move people out into places that are, are you know, impoverished and then you know, improve the infrastructure just for the wealthy to move but if, in. But if the infrastructure and the fabric of the place is improved, then the, it's likely the property price is going to go up. Sorry, can, can you hear it at the, the, the back? Yeah. So if, you, if you're improving the fabric of the building and you're improving the infrastructure, then it's natural that property price is going to rise because you're improving the area. So yeah. the people who are there aren't going to be able to afford it anyway. So I'm not yeah. sure what your alternative is. Yeah, but that, that's the point. I mean, when I talk about class cleansing, that is effectively what I'm talking about. People being pushed um, out of areas. Um, you know, a lot of people, like, for example, when the new East London line was improved and brought up to Dalston. People who'd lived in, in, in hardship in Dalston for a long time had been crying out for improved infrastructure and improved resources. But, you know, so many estates have been privatised. I mean, I know this from personal experience. I mean, I lived on a Peabody estate that was then sold off to private developers. People were moved right out to Poplar, you know, right out near the Blackwall approach. And you might sort of say, well, people should get a job in Thamesmead, but you, you obviously haven't been to Thamesmead. It's an incredibly depressed area. You would still have to have a cleaning job in the city, but it would take you probably two and a half, three hours to get there. I, I think what we got, since you mentioned time, um, uh, we get to you two questions in a second. Mm -hmm. There is a sort of really strange thing going between 1981 and, and 2011. <laughs> it doesn't really rhyme in the way I wanted it to, but 10 plus 1. Um, I, I, um, 
unbelievable, I know, to think that I'm 20 years older than you, but um, it is interesting that I lived through, I moved to Deptford when I first came to, to London, and that really was um, a very interesting area, full stop, but it was a very, very edgy area. And the whole regeneration, gentrification, and I think that's the problem, really, that you've got gentrification bad, regeneration good. And I think the problem that, that what I'm seeing in 30 years on, it's a process, is that what happens sometimes the, the areas, you've got this sort of rather tokenistic idea that X percent of any development will be for low-cost rents or low-cost purchases, or basically almost like the servants' quarters will be on the, on the, on the, in the building. I mean, it's, you could argue it's better than nothing. But there is a feeling that that, that if you haven't really got the money, you're moved out, literally, and you're moved far out as well. Mm. And there isn't, um, I mean, it depends what you, either you obviously say, look, cities change and it moves in, you just forget about it, you know, if you've got the money, you move in, and if you haven't, well, you move elsewhere, and somehow it'll take its form, whatever. But there is an inherent sadness that things shift and change. And in an age where we're meant to be far more aware, I mean, this is 2011, you know, you know, have we learnt the mistakes of the 60s, the 70s? You sometimes wonder if you had, because it just sort of drifts into another situation where basically those that haven't got the money end up having less, they've moved out, they haven't got a choice. And those that, who do have, have a choice. And it's not like the buildings are saved. Often they're not. And the quality of the architecture, I mean, I, the only thing I'd possibly slightly disagree with you, I'm, I'm a quite a brutalist fan, you know. Yeah. Um, if any of you want to see, by the way, there are two films about Thamesmead. One is called uh, Beautiful Thing, and that's being re-released. It's 15 years since that, and it's going to be um, on show in London again, the Jonathan Harvey play, um, made into a film. It was a film originally, so there. But the, the point is that, that it is incredibly complex, and yet very, very simple, that um, good brutalist design, had it been made well, and it there wasn't, again, it's a too typical English thing. Um, they don't put enough money into it, so it falls apart. And what, what you're seeing in this sort of Mickey Mouse Bauhaus that so much of post-post-post-modernist architecture is done, or post-modern, it, it is bland. And um, the blandness is kept for those who ain't got the money. Mm. And there are cases where you get great design. And, and it, it is actually done in a way that is accessible, but it's pockets of, and the, you know we, we should know better. And that's not yuppie brain. Now I know we had the um, lady up there, I think, and a gentleman there. The hands, yes, okay, gentleman there in the blue black. Then lady up there, and then we will work down to you too. Oh, we, we might finish with you. <laughs> There's a double act going on here. There. <laughs> I suppose I'm quite interested in uh, what you're actually... Um, could, could you use the microphone? Yeah, I suppose... I, sorry. I suppose I'm quite interested in um, uh, the work in situ, and I think, think it's quite sad to see this work now quite separated from the people there. This is pictures of the people. But um, it would have been interesting to see them on the walls. It would have been interesting to know what kind of interaction you had with the people who you portray. Um, I, I'm just quite concerned that this becomes quite, in itself, it could almost be a yucky adventure itself, if you see what I mean, in the sense that you're now 
got a picture of something which um, is quite likely that some sort of fairly middle class people might be interested in buying. And I just wonder where, um, if you see where I'm getting at. Yeah, no, I yeah. can answer that question quite so easily. I, I, and, and the other thing was that they're quite sort of, I mean, to, for, an, for an observer to see a piece of work like this, you know, you can think, well, these places have a strange, eerie beauty. You know, they have a lot of things. They're very fragmented and everything else. But on the other hand, for somebody who's actually living there, it's pretty horrific. Mm. And I just sort of kind of wonder, you know. Yeah, so what, well, what I can answer that. I mean, because I'm not I'm making work as somebody that's, like, been living in Hampstead in a mansion and going, like, a, an adventurer into the labyrinth like some so-called psychogeographers do. You know, I lived on the Aylesbury estate. I've lived, you know, in precarious conditions. For the 20 years that I've lived in London, I've had about 50 different addresses, you know, squats and abandoned estates in short-life housing schemes on estates. Um, but to get back to your first question about who's going to see the work, I mean, yeah, I make work in galleries and museums. Galleries, you might argue, does have a more kind of limited, maybe slightly more elite constituency. But the museums that I exhibit in are public museums. Um, for example, I've got a show in the West Midlands in January in Walsall at the new museum there that's very keen on bringing in public, you know, ordinary working class people from that area into that space. But as well as that, my work, as I say, has different registers, different... Um, Different, different channels that it operates in. So I go out fly posting. That work operates on the street. And then there's the book as well. I mean, you can't really get more egalitarian than a book. You know, it doesn't matter like who you are. You know, you can get hold of a book. This this is circulating all over. Like Verso's publishing it. It's got massive distribution. It's available everywhere. You can get it like you know, pretty cheap, 13, 14 quid on Amazon can borrow a copy from a library. The idea that I'm doing an elitist project is, is completely wrong. So it would be nice to know that. It would be nice to actually see these on the walls. You know, when you fly it would be nice to see a little bit of that. Well. But if you lived in those areas, you might have seen it. True. I think we need your postcode and you can do a special <laughs> fly posting trip down there. Gentlemen there. Yeah, I wonder if you've done any thinking about the kind of strategies by which any of this can be resisted, either in terms of um, some residents on an estate or in terms of actually thinking about how urban policy could be improved to make regeneration schemes more inclusive mm. um, and to prevent, so you, so you can have that kind of um, investment in an area and but not have this kind of, not have the substance gentrification from it. Um, so I wonder if you've done any kind of positive thinking around that, around how maybe we can still have investment, but maybe not have these kind of um, undesirable social effects where people are priced out. Well, that's that, yeah, like, that sounds a bit like tinkering on the edges, though, because, I mean, what it, what it requires is a radical... Um, you know, upheaval, like a radical change, like this whole thing would have to be like, you know, the um, the whole process of like the urban regeneration thing, class cleansing thing is, is, is you know, intrinsically flawed as far as I'm concerned. But, um, but I also have to say, you know, that I'm an artist and I walk around making biro drawings. Um, I'm not, you know, 
um, a politician, I'm not, a, you know, a, a political scientist or economist. You know, I can't offer detailed or any sort of solutions actually to, to any of these questions. What what I feel my role is as an artist is to raise questions, to to have these kind of arguments, but hopefully to op offer a glimpse uh, of a different perspective, to give different insights into, you know, uh, different positions or situations. Have we got anybody in from LSE Cities here? Oh, just when you need them. <laughs> a whole master's program in, should be there. I think uh, you're the next person? Yeah. You, you spoke about how your own history and memories and growing up had influenced the way in which you were experiencing and perceiving environments. What is the, the relationship for you between history, memory, and, and even nostalgia, and, and where is the line? And, and related to that, what is the influence of, I, I read somewhere, of, of Walter Benjamin and the past and the role that that plays for you in your work? Yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, I mean, I think there is um, a, a sort of fine line between, you know, this sort of documentation and a sort of sentimentality or a, a nostalgia. I mean, I'm, I'm acutely aware of that. I mean, when I think about what nostalgia means in the context of my work, I actually see it as a vengeful thing, you know, nostalgia as a form of revenge in a way, which I guess in, in a sense would be the way Benjamin might kind of talk about that in a way of sort of going back to a certain historical moment in order to pl plot different trajectories or different lines of flight out of that particular moment to, to look at how different futures might have emerged from that time. So he talks about the yet side, doesn't he, like now times sort of moments of catastrophe where there's a break in history where other possibilities can emerge from that time. Um, and that's something that I, I, I think about a lot in terms of, um, you know, I, I refer to dates quite a lot, like you were saying, like I refer to 1981, 85, these flare-ups of insurrectionary moments, um, important historical moments, very intense times that stay in a landscape. Um, but not as a way of saying, oh, you know, wasn't it nice and cosy and I wish I was back there, but as a way of saying, well, actually, if we just look back at this particular time, we might be able to plot uh, a different outcome. Because if you think about, you know, the sort of moment when there's a sort of neoliberal expansion and the consolidation of that, if we pinpoint that moment before that, I mean, I always go back to, like, early 80s for that reason, you know, like... Thatcher gets in in the late 70s and then you've got a kind of split between Europe and the US and then we follow this kind of neoliberal model and it's this idea of saying well let's like, just look back at these moments of insurrection and see what might have happened if we'd taken a different route out of that anyway. This is a great question okay we've, we've, um, I think first you and then, then you it's a weird coincidence. It's, I think it was 81, with, you had these images of the furniture shop that had burnt down in Brixton, and then 2011, you had the furniture shop that had opened it. And also, the other thing is, is oh, I don't know, it's good to know that Westfield is now going to open up in Croydon. That is the, um, the <laughs> saviour. So they've got, Westfield has gone east and it's going south, so just north to go. Then, yeah. <laughs>
Okay, so because as a, as a complete outsider from London, but who have lived in different countries in like Europe and yeah. America, I'm, I'm quite surprised about the issue of poverty in London because quite as, surprised at what, sorry. As the issue of poverty, oh, because as yeah. one of the most expensive cities in the world, uh, I'm quite struck by the fact that poverty is almost invisible in the city. That might sound really striking, but when you've been raised in Paris, in New York, in even in a social welfare state like Canada, or in Bogota, like my, my friend here, really poverty is not very, you, you don't see it as much. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm very interested of, of getting the perspective of, uh, of a person who's uh, working on that, on that issue, because it's quite striking. There's hundreds of people on one street in, the, in, in Paris or New York, like hundreds of elbows in, in, in streets. Vancouver was even worse. In London, you don't see them. So I'm just wondering, where are those poverty, you know, like... Well, I don't know where you live, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, I mean, I find it baffling that you could say that, really. No, I no. Mean, I mean, seriously, like... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. New York and Vancouver. No, no, I'm just not. I'm not. I'm. I'm wondering. It, it, it's. It's really as a question. I'm sure it does exist. It's one of the most expensive cities in the world. Here, I'm just wondering I mean, how is the phenomenon is different. Like how is it, you know, concentrated? Because it's not as much as in the street. As but in I mean, you know, you only have to cross the river here and sort of wander about around Waterloo and go down through the Elephant and into Camberwell and Peckham. Um, you know, it's like. Is this a trick question? Are you a plant? <laughs> it just seems... I'm sorry, I don't mean to be disrespectful, no, but it's bizarre. It's, like, it's just a bizarre thing I think to say. The, I think the point is that it's all relative. So perhaps an English person's experience of poverty, we would... I'm being English as well. I would understand what you would understand as poverty. Mm. But also, having travelled... having no, lived I'm in, talking about having lived in, poverty, Having lived in somewhere uh, like Philadelphia... The, the idea of poverty is it's also much more extreme and I'm guessing for our friend here from Bogota again it's another extreme so I think the point is that it's all relative and he's just trying to place where your relative understanding of poverty comes from I'm not negating the fact that there might be poverty in London I'm just interested in your perception of what is the how is the phenomenon happening in London what is the specific spe phenomenon because if you have lived in other cities, you know that poverty in the streets is not the same in London. I mean, London I've lived in rest. New York, and I, and I know what you're talking about, you know, the extreme nope. objection of people, um, you know, Vietnam vets, like, with limbs missing, lying around in the street, um, you know, and, and, the, and this is the consequence of having, you know, no social support, no welfare program at all, and this is what we need to, to look at here. You know that this is. You know, if we carry on following this model, um, you know this. You know that's the the tragedy that awaits. But at the same time, you know, you've got a situation where there's massive overcrowding in, in, in Tower Hamlets and, and and Newham. You've got TB is rife in those areas. You know, you've got um, massive housing shortage. You've got massive waiting lists. You've got people lying on trolleys in the Royal London Hospital that can't be seen. I mean, help me out here, please. please. I, 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 I'm just going to... Um, <laughs> did, did you want to comment well, Jed, on these two or a separate one? Well, Jed, you this, say this gentleman's first. Actually, I was going to say what she just said. All right, then, OK. <laughs> one thing I, I would say, I think it's interesting... Um, how you, 
I'm just wondering, I was trying to, to work out how you, because I'm, I'm actually, you know, there are some areas of really, you know, tough poverty. I, I was trying to avoid the cliche of grinding poverty, and I was just looking at um, Manchester was on the news today, and the, the four areas of Manchester, I think, are now even worse than, than, than areas in London. But there were two areas in London that were the worst in the country, and that was Tower Hamlets, and I forget the other borough. It might have been Newham, because Newham's yeah. in a dire So it, it is there. But I think, you know what, it is easy to, to not see the really poor sides of London, literally because geographically you might not go there. Plus, London's always had this technique of two streets nice, one behind, awful. I mean, look at the booth maps, you yeah. know, which are on there. You, you, I was stunned when I saw those, and you actually did have almost like, nice, nice, you don't walk there, walk quickly. And then it, London's always had that, whereas in, perhaps in Paris, it's areas you don't go down there. But the idea that there's always been bits and pieces of London where that road's rather nice, you know, and, and so you can perhaps, perhaps not see what, what is really sometimes, you know, obvious if you, you just carried on walking. So I, I, I would say, do look or don't look. You wanted to comment? Uh, yeah, I, um, I, I live, sorry, I'm, I'm going to sort of reduce, reduce my credentials here. I, I live in, Kel in Kensington in Chelsea. Um, and I some tougher states. Uh, well, well, yeah. Uh, having said that, um, this stuff goes on inside Kensington and Chelsea. I, I, I know. I know a, a trustee who works for West London Action for Children. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she 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 was telling me that forty percent of kids in Kensington and Chelsea are are on free school meals. They they're 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 relatively low budget charity that manages three on three hundred thousand pounds a year and and the goodwill of, of a lot of professional women. Um, tackle an awful lot of social problems, and they're absolutely horrendous. Kensington and Chelsea Borough are incredibly effective at hiding problems, um, which, which, is, which is part of the reason why West, West, West London Action Children exists. Um, right off the King's Road, there are a couple of problem um, estates just there, um, towards the bottom near, near the river. Um, it, it, it like literally meters from the extremely expensive shops. You have, you have like council, like the police coming out in the middle of a Friday night, and and all of that stuff going on. Um, people running up and down the street all night in motorbikes and the like. Um, I find I find I, I appreciate your work, and I find your work extremely interesting. It's just to add that comment that in somewhere like Kensington, Chelsea, all of this stuff is also going on. Yeah, no, I know, I know, like West Kensington and North Kensington pretty well. Yeah. Okay, we've got the gentleman in the V-neck top, then gentleman in the leather, then the lady in the um, red. Red for Cerise. <laughs> Hi, I just want to first of all say you're very brave for speaking at the LSE, at the Temple of Capitalism, but I'm with you. Um, <laughs> um, and I just, like, I, just, I am not, never lived on a council estate, but I've been hanging out at the Haygate estate quite a lot in the last year or so because a huge community has developed there, kind of like a grassroots guerrilla gardening, sort of trying to make use of the space in interim uses. And I'm wondering if you have any, like, any sympathy for, because I think I'm technically your enemy, but I, <laughs> but I kind of have developed a, an empathy for this, you know, narrative of mm, failed welfare in London. I also think, like, when you showed the new builds and say they're really ugly, and I kind of agree that all of these really expensive, like the new development in Dolson Junction, like that will probably be crumbling in 60 years, and I kind of want to like. 60. 
Okay, six whenever, but I kind of think like all of these, you know, middle class families now investing in those properties for their children who are not going to have any jobs because there aren't any. And then in 60 years' time, those once beautiful buildings will have crumbled and we'll be sat in them. We won't even have anything to rally against, you know, like where, where, do, where do you kind of position either hope is one thing in terms of the guerrilla gardeners trying to make something awareness of this terrible thing that's happened and also uh, do you not think that wider global economic movement is just going to completely almost make this particular narrative kind of a footnote I don't know that's a bit mean um, well no I mean because this, this narrative or, or, or series of narratives that I'm talking about is you know it, it, it's it's within the context, obviously, of like a wider economic situation. Obviously, it's intrinsically a part of that. Um, I mean, as for sort of occupying abandoned estates, yeah, of course. I mean, I, I mean, I do it's that. Kind of yeah, but it's yeah, it, it doesn't kind of take the place of uh, a serious um, radical alternative, or you know, it's just um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've sort of spent time around the Haygate as well, and it has just become a, a sort of film set and, uh, you know, somewhere where people have a few parties. And I just think, yeah, fine, you know, if people want to throw a few sunflower seeds about, that's all right. But really, there should be, like, some proper council housing to replace. That was a massive amount of council housing stock, and it is absolutely disgraceful that it's just been left abandoned. All those people have been moved out, and you know, there's all those empty flats there. 2,500. Yeah. So exactly, you know. Um, so, what can I say about that, really? Yeah. Well, that's it's pretty, mm. gentlemen. Yeah, I just wanted to say that um, for people that are coming into London that don't see the poverty. Uh, on the streets. Um, that, I think, is partly due to what Laura is talking about, that this has been sent to the margins. And if you were to come to this area right here, 10 years ago, only 10 years ago, in Lincoln's in fields right behind us, and all along the Strand, you would have seen shantytown-style shacks. Um, lots of them as well, with homeless people in them, and all the way up the Strand, homeless people living in all the shop doorways. So it's not that it's not there, it's just been pushed out to the margins. Yeah, with zero tolerance policing that's been you know, adopted from the Giuliani model in New York, yeah. I, I think the other point you were saying as well is the mediocrity of the design that um, a few years ago um, I was looking at, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, you know, it, yeah, it's, I don't like to think of myself yuppie, but you know, I do what everything is. I earn a salary and I can buy a flat. And I was looking uh, to buy a flat that had just been built a block in Bermondsey. And I turned down one because it had only been up for two to three years and it was already starting to look quite manky. Um, and I wanted to buy a flat um, and uh, they'd been built. And I said, could I have a look at it? He said, you can't. I said, will you buy off plan? I said, but it's been built now. He said, well, we don't let allow people to you. To, you buy it off plan. I said, but it's built. Why can't I see the flat? Went on for ages. And he said, hold on a minute. Are you trying to buy it for yourself? I went, yeah, for me to live in. He went, oh, well, most people just buy it to buy to let. 
And it was this bizarre, surreal, and I can't imagine any other country, certainly that I, um, my, my second, no, I've got a second home in Berlin, but I go to Berlin a lot. You wouldn't have that conversation of buying a flat for yourself and you look to someone it's rather weird that you want to A, see the flat that you're going to buy, you're not buying off plan, and anyway you're actually buying for yourself and not buy to let. And that's why I say, the, 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 the world that London lives in is a very extreme you know, type thing. Anyway, over to you. Um, I just want to say I've kind of been aware of your work for quite a long time and I think it's really interesting. I think visually really amazing and also just something that really needs to be said and I think that the visual method that you use is really effective, so sorry. Um, <laughs> but I also think um, a lot of the things that you concentrate on are about kind of residential space and, and also there's, you know, kind of public space in general, but I'm quite interested in um, how kind of industrial space has changed a lot in London because now, you know, kind of in a lot of ways industry doesn't exist in, you know, in kind of vast ways of London. So um, I've been recently talking to a friend a bit about a project that he was doing in Vauxhall because of this, um, I can't remember what it's called, but this kind of open development site basically where all comers can, can you know, just buy up sites and, and you know, there, there's an actual kind of um, an area where, where developers can just come and kind of do whatever they like with it. Whereas previously there was a lot of kind of industrial areas and I think quite a lot of residential areas in that, in that space, but basically it's now going to be more or less purely kind of very expensive, um, very expensive residential space. And I just like, I think that, that 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 loss of kind of actual industrial spaces for people to work in, you know, kind of really goes hand in hand with the loss of uh, the sort of residential provision for people on low incomes. You know, it just doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there's been a shift from us being, you know, an industrial economy to a service industry predominantly and you know massive kind of property speculation in London so you know I, I guess that goes back to what I was saying before about my own formative memories of West Yorkshire as a, a sort of post-industrial landscape you know abandoned mill buildings and factories uh, and that sense of being born into the aftermath of an era you know a melancholy landscape where now most people in my family um, my dad's family were um, out of work, you know, when I was growing up, because they'd all worked in the dye works, in the textile industry, which, you know, had gone into decline by that period. Um, so when I came to London, um, as I say, you know, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, saw the Lower Lee Valley and, and came to know that area for the first time, it resonated with me on a deeply personal level because, yeah, there was still light industrial units and there was there was still like a few tanneries and dye works like operating on small scale and, and a few printing firms and car breakers yards. I'm not saying there was nothing there, but there were still these big warehouses um, which, you know, became occupied uh, in different ways, you know, were squatted or used as early artist studios, space studios, took some of the first buildings around there and Derek Jarman was one of the founders of that. Um, 
but yeah, um, so so that that sense of a, a kind of, of yearning or that that sense of deep sense of melancholy, you know, that obviously that does exist in in pockets of London as well, but almost entirely across the whole north of England. I used to work uh, as an intern for a fashion designer who had a studio um, in in Hackney Wick on Carpenters Road, which is now, like you were saying, you know, is part of the um, uh, part of the Olympic site, and and is now, you know, it literally stops where yeah. their studio was. And there, they had a kind of old uh, a studio in like an old Victorian warehouse, and it still stands. It's like right by the Lee River. Um, and you know, kind of where the where Carpenters Road goes over the Lee River, sorry, I'm being really specific, but it's really weird to walk around there. I live in Hackney as well, and like to walk around there and see that remnant of the sort of creative community that ha that was that existed around around Carpenters Road, which itself, you know, was something that came out of the remnant of the industrial. Yeah. Practices that, like you know, the industrial, kind of the industry that had existed around there. Yeah, I mean, because for me, there's like that. There's that. I talk about um, that sadness and, and melancholia, um, which obviously abandoned industrial buildings are imbued with that. But then there's also that sense of sadness when an area like the Lee Valley, which was really interesting on so many levels, um, just becomes a kind of bland, smooth space of homogenous consumption, you know, i.e., you know, the legacy, Olympic legacy, what is that Westfield shopping centre? I mean, really, and, and a really boring landscaped park, you know, the destruction of genuinely interesting um, areas, you know, uh, just becoming really utterly boring and bland. So there is like a sadness in me about that, but also, you know, an anger. But then, underlying all of that, there is this sense that it will all come back. It will all come back. And the Olympic Stadium will be covered in ivy and convolvulus and bindweed. The whole thing will be, you know... I mean, yeah, that's what I think is going to happen. Hi, I absolutely adore your work. Um, I've also been um, a resident at the Market Estate, so I completely understand that you know, as an immigrant and as an Irish person, countenancing the city of London in a way where I actually don't recognise that it's a first world country was quite shocking for me. Um, but I just want to, you know, state, because obviously there's lots of kind of different opinions on that. Yeah. Um, one of my questions for you, I have two questions. First, you, firstly, are you utopian or dystopian? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I don't know either. Um, and then the other thing is about um, this idea of um, space and fetish, or the fetishization of space. Mm. Um, and there seems to be these policies around, Demos have um, released this um, paper on resilient spaces, encouraging artists to utilize space in a way where it kind of, I suppose, accrues a certain amount of value that brings about gentrification, etc. But what I find interesting about what you're doing is that you're not, let's say, doing the, uh, the guerrilla gardening where you're actually in the space actualizing it in a certain way mm. your drawings are somehow removed from it so I was just wondering mm. how you 
would you have advice for artists in terms of avoiding fetishizing space, etc.? Mm. I don't know. I mean, for me, I guess because I'm so concerned with this idea of a nomadic subjectivity, um, you know, it's about wanting to live in certain type of places and not wanting to live in certain other types of places, but not being so concerned with the preservation of a, a specific geographical location, maybe. I mean, that sounds kind of confusing. Um, but I think I'm more concerned with, um, you know, thinking about temporal zones rather than kind of plotting spatially uh, sometimes, um, suggesting that at a given moment, like now, um, certain territories have been taken, you know, and, and, and I would argue temporarily so. Um, but, you know, not too far away uh, in the future, it will be, it will come back. People will, will take it back, you know. There, there's this idea for me of, um, you know, as I said before, you know, going back to like the early 90s, this sense that, um, you know, unless you were wealthy, um, you wouldn't be able to live in, in inner London or inner cities generally or out in the middle of the countryside. These two poles were to be the preserve of the wealthy and that we were to live in a fixed place in a kind of exurban sort of development. And in a way, that's, that's what I've been railing against, really, that the desire to retain that idea of, a, of an itinerant kind of existence and lifestyle, but of thought as well, you know, subjective, uh, a nomadic subjectivity, not just, um, you know, the right to, to, to move around. Um, but I think it's increasingly hard uh, as an artist or a writer, or anyone in fact, uh, just to wander around the city because of what I was talking about before, the, the sort of blockages and obstacles, the, uh, you know, the privatization of, of space, um, the fact that you can't freely take photographs anymore, you know, that they'll use the Prevention of Terrorism Act on you for taking photographs. These kind of things, you know, these impediments in in the free movement around the city. I mean, I've been like, I've mates with me that have been hauled in for enforced DNA swabs for taking photographs, and you know, um, so I don't know. I don't know really what how I'd advise people other than just to, you know. I, 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 I think it. it's, as well as I think you have to remember that that ultimately what you are. It's a personal vision as well. You're not making a blueprint for urban design. No, you know absolutely. And so, again, it's it's, and that's why it's interesting you, what, what your work does because it leads you in one direction to other critique of what should be done, but also leads it back to you and, and what your yeah. memories. Now, um, I know we've got a question burning there, and there's a question, but you got in first, so first here, and then the gentleman there in the uh, blue on blue. Uh. Coming back to the first point, now I, after all this um, argument, I realize it's, it's, very, it's very consequent. We having all these arguments about this, it, it's because it's, it's kind of your work. It's, it's on this uh, bubbling uh, kind of uh, something happening in the city and something happening here. It's really consequent and I, I, think, I think the whole ha argument, it, it's, it's very like talking the same way your your work is talking like to us it's it's like you're saying things that we normally have so many things to say and that's i think what's happening here that's basically all i needed to okay. say 
Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Did you get a mic? Oh, you got a mic, yeah. Hi. Um, I'm assuming you're familiar with the arguments of the situationists about the need to, or what they felt was the need to supersede uh, or jettison the concept of the artist and thus art, right? So my yeah. question's um, really simple, but I think the implications are really, really big. Um, why do you choose to identify as an artist rather than, say, an activist, in light of those arguments and um, especially in terms of how the public, how we would understand you differently according to those terms. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I kind of, I suppose, in a sense, I mean, I do understand those arguments about collapsing those distinctions between art and everyday life, or the role of an artist as being privileged, or the role of a museum, or even the term situationist itself would be problematic to the board at that time. You know, you couldn't talk about it in those car um, categories. But um, for me, you know, it's just a case of how I've um, allocated my time. I mean, I used to be much more like um, hands-on involved in activist milieu, you know, whereas I'm not now. Um, I'm kind of involved when there's a situation, when I'm needed on the street or in a certain place, then I'll be there, but I'm not sitting in meetings all the time and I'm not kind of fully engaged, although I am still, I feel, a part of that scene on a personal level and, you know, um, but really in terms of like how I, you know, my profession, and I'm, I am proud to sort of talk about it in those terms, you know, it's something that I've worked very hard at, I've trained professionally, I've spent, you know, eight years in education doing this, and years and years and years and years. Um, you know, expending hours and hours and hours in a studio to hone my craft and, and develop my skills. So I call myself an artist with absolute you know, pride in the term because I think it's something I've earned, you know. And as somebody from, you know, a fairly kind of ordinary working class background um, who was never, you know, never came to London with any connections or private income, which a lot of my peers at the Slade and the Royal College did, I say it with even greater degree of pride. Can I just respond to that? Um, <laughs> I, I understand that and I accept that, but isn't that quite a narrow understanding of activism, someone who's well, identifiable as an activist in the streets? You know, like. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's a fluid term, isn't it? I mean, I think I have a problem when people are, are, are sort of, would categorise themselves as an activist, and it suggests a sort of professional activism, which I find difficult myself. I think what's more interesting is when situations start to shift socially and politically, and people move, you know, politically in response to things heating up, you know, in response to mass meetings, wildcat strikes, um, you know, dissent, on, on, in wh however that manifests itself. You know, people move. People will, will move quite quickly and be radicalised by struggle. I mean, I grew up in Yorkshire, as I keep saying, in the 84-85, the miners' strike. Um, people there would not describe themselves as activists. They'd call themselves miners, right? And, and the wives of miners would not call themselves activists. But they, you know, they radicalised. They, they, they were absolutely militant. There was white-hot militancy in those villages at that time, and, th and that, that current remains. But people, you know, 
working class people proud of like what they've, they've worked hard and trained to do you know there's a, there's a sort of pride in that so I think the term activist for me is problematic because a lot of people that would call themselves that are, are kind of moralistic and, and judgmental people that kind of exist outside often of, of most people's everyday experiences of, of what it is to kind of struggle you know in a precarious situation. Well, I mean, it is. Like, this is what I'm saying, you know. I'm, I'm aware of the argument that you can't... You know, I don't like these kind of clear distinctions anyway. I mean, I've always personally collapsed that distinction between, you know, art and everyday life for me. I mean, I don't separate art from my everyday life. It absolutely is intrinsic to me and the way that I participate in the world all the time. It just is that. And the fact that there is a strong social and political element to my work means that clearly on some levels I might be described as an activist but I'm not I'm an artist though I like to say it that's what I am I think actually that's really quite a good point to to really end unless it's a burning question because I would I, I think it's interesting I, I, I was so um, intrigued about this evening because I knew visually it was going to be good in the content but I'd like to thank actually everybody in the room for making it very very lively because I didn't actually think we were going to um, explore certain territories and I'd like to thank the audience for, for actually moving it along but I'd like to thank you and it really is a, a big thank you because what you've done and I think that, that it came through in this evening and it comes through in your work is that you, you have us under some like sort of elastic band where you come from this very personal, but you come to something, there's an issue, it's explored. Mm -hmm. And we're sort of bounced back as well, but on the other hand, it's you walking down the streets with a biro. Um, uh, <laughs> this idea of, of something, and I think that as well, when you look at and I think technically, I'm full of admiration for what you do, and you, you, you're seeing that and then you, you throw it away in a sense saying it's a small scale, it's a bar, it's not meant to last forever and again there's a, almost an implicit immediate nostalgia about that work that almost you feel you're going to scrunch that up now and not let us see it anymore because yeah. it's gone but in a sense it's what we all do, we all scrunch our lives up and it is scrunched up for us and I think it's what you've done and what, what I identified is the way you look at the bits in between, the moments in between, all of those sort of caught moments which I think um, are, are so important to really, to really see and understand and actually looking at a topic which you can look at for so many ways from a hardcore we should look at thing, what, how we are planning our cities to something that bounces back to the personal moments and it's the idea of nostalgia I like the German more Heimweh because it's, it's the pain of looking at a home you might have lost yeah. but also it's actually something you might not have lived through and, and, an era you won't have lived through because you were too young for it but somehow there's almost a, an implicit nostalgia that it's something you'll never know but you feel sorry for it in the, nevertheless so big round of applause